Hey everyone, it's Dave the Tech Geek here and uh, we just wanted to let you know that this episode is part one of a two-part bumper episode featuring a very special guest, David Gus. David joined us live via Skype to talk about a man that not only managed to eventually escape the war, but during his journey made 21 different escape attempts. It's an amazing story and we hope that you have as much fun listening to it as we had when we were initially talking to David. Enjoy the episode! Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, presented by me, Dave, the history nerd. And me, Dave, the tech geek. Um, today we're looking at a particular fellow by the name of Alistair Cram, which is another, I have to say, strong name that you've picked there, Dave. It's a, it's a great name, and uh, I, I'm particularly fond of Cram for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, he is Scottish, which... Uh, is uh, a winning ticket in any in anyone's book, but especially yeah. mine. Um, but we actually share the, the same hometown. We are both from Perth in Scotland. Wow, that's cool. Um, so, and in, in actual fact, I know uh, not just the school that he went to, but I know where he grew up as well. So it's uh, <laughs> it's because it is it's not a large city by any stretch of the imagination, and uh, so I, I've always been interested in. Uh, Alistair Cram, but I'm particularly excited for this episode today. It's a good episode. It, it is going to be a great episode because we actually have a guest with us today. Professor David Gus has joined us today, who is the author of The 21 Escapes of Lieutenant Alistair Cram, um, a weighty tome. Um, I have it in front of me here, but it is a fantastic read. I, I've uh, read it twice now and very, nice. very enjoyable read. Um, so I'm thrilled to have you here with us, David. Thank you. Welcome, David. It's great to be here. The three, the three Daves here. Yeah, yeah just just to confuse the naming scheme even more. There's the third Dave. <laughs> yes, yeah, we we definitely thought this one through. Um, so yeah, th- thank you again for uh, joining us. And in many ways, the floor is yours, David. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about uh, Alistair and his background? Growing up, I, I just uh, devoured escape literature, which of course was kind of unusual for a kid in. Uh, New Jersey, the United States, doing so, but and it was difficult for me to get a lot of the escape literature that was readily at hand for a British child. But um, in reading escape literature, a lot of the best books uh, that I read, and a lot of them uh, focused on Italy and not just Germany. And, and I think that there's a type of prejudice in a certain way uh, that the German escape literature is somehow heftier or that it takes priority in some way but the Italian escape literature is fabulous and um, that is something that interested me particularly in writing about Cram because I thought that uh, there were so many books about Colditz and there were no books about the Italian equivalent of Colditz which is Gavi and so I really wanted to write a Gavi-centered kind of book, and there was nobody better to write that about than Alistair Cram. But I think I should probably tell a little bit about Alistair and his background and who he was, and then we can get into sort of talking about the escapes and, and Gavi and the 12 camps that he was in and the three Gestapo prisons he was held in 
and uh, as well as one in the sane asylum where he almost died. So uh, Cram uh, was, as he mentioned, born in Perth. His father was a was a bit older uh, in terms of a parent, and he was from Calendar. And um, Alistair and people who know him always really considered him a real Highlander. And uh, I guess the clan he would have been part of would have been the Buchanans. And so many people on his mother's side were Buchanan. She was from Dunkeld. Well, one of them, uh, either that was uh, his father, who was named Duncan, who was a solicitor in Perth, um, he had gone to the University of Glasgow, was a tremendous athlete. It was a really uh, a dominant figure, as you can imagine. He was one of the founding figures of the Rangers. Uh, he was uh, an incredible golfer, a fisherman, a climber, and of course, a football player. And um, So, so ju just to clarify, um, so Duncan Cram was a, yes. a founding member of Glasgow Rangers, the football club. That's right, Excellent. yeah. Wow. And, wow. And, and so, um, and uh, Isabel, uh, Alistair's widow, who I became very close to, and I just want to mention that now in, in relationship to my references to Isabel, said that at some point they they found his original stock holding it in uh, the Rangers, and they ended up selling it for a pretty penny, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I imagine and, it was, yes. Yeah. So, um in any case, uh, he was he was a great figure, Duncan. Got married. He was 12 years older than Alistair's mother. They only had the one child who they, you know, uh, loved dearly. And um, they were real outdoors people, which I think for uh, Scottish families of that generation was not unusual. Not but so they had a caravan with a horse that they would go into the highlands around Aviemore and the Cairngorms regularly and Alistair made his first uh, mountain climb when he was four and wow. uh at, and at 14 he was already climbing alone um, and uh and that was really his passion and so uh mountain climbing and and running and so he was a distance runner in the early 30s when he was at the uh university of edinburgh he held the scottish record briefly, but held it for the half mile. And um, he was the co-captain of, of the track team for the university and regularly did that run up to Arthur's seat every year. And there's some great pictures of him doing that. So he was a, a, a really fantastic athlete in his own right. But you can see in terms of what he was interested in, it, they were all solitary activities. He wasn't a kind of person who did team sports. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, no, he was not. So long distance runner, mountain climber. Uh, and that's the kind of person he, uh, he, he was. And um, he was one of the founders in Perth of the Junior Mountaineering Club of Scotland okay. in, in 1930. Joined the Scottish Mountaineering Society and... As I mentioned, every one of his climbs, uh, he wrote an article for the Scottish Mountaineering Journal. So they're really covered um, quite closely. And um, he, as a young person, had a certain amount of notoriety as a climber. The Perth Advertiser 
followed all of his feats, and they were numerous. And uh, when he was 17, there was the famous case of the two climbers, one named Thomas Baird, who uh, uh, were lost um, in uh, the Cairn Gurms in a snowstorm and in winter. And Alistair and his companion uh, discovered them. And um, Alistair, they discovered them nearly dead in the snow. Actually, they only found one. And he was still alive. They got him to a lodge. And Alistair ran for quite a few miles until he finally found a household that put him in touch with the doctor. They went back by car. The car got stuck in a, in a snowstorm. Alistair got out and ran several miles again to get back there. And all in all, that one day he did 32 miles, which wow. was quite a few. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, and, and Baird uh, died. And uh, it was a famous case. The papers, uh, all the Scottish papers, wrote about this quite, uh, quite a bit. Not long after that, Alistair starts to climb in the Alps. And uh, he has all these wonderful documented climbs and eventually starts guiding uh, others in the Alps. He was asked uh, in 32 to go to, uh, with the Cambridge Mountaineering Society and he leads them on a, uh, a trip through uh, mountains in Norway. So he's, you know, both a guide and um, he's uh, doing these incredible climbs on his own. And he studies law at uh, Edinburgh University. And at, uh, upon graduation in 1933, mm -hmm. becomes an intern or apprentice at Balfour and, and uh, Manson. He became quite close to, uh, uh, to Balfour, the, uh, the founder, whose uh, grandson, Ian Balfour, was uh, tremendously helpful uh, fleshing all this out when I was doing the book. And they stayed uh, very close, the older Balfour, who, who really liked Alistair a tremendous amount. And what, after Alistair gets out of uh, school at a, at a university, he's kind of in that sort of, I think, pre-war existential funk that a lot of people uh, were in at that time, and certainly a lot of Americans, what's called the lost generation, who comes to Paris and writes, that Alistair is, is, is somewhat in, imbued with uh, that type of ambivalence about whether he should start practicing law or do something else. He's, he writes poetry uh, throughout college and publishes poetry in the College Journal magazine. And he ends up going to uh, Fraser Darling's uh, Island Farm. It's out on uh, Tenera in the Summer Isles. Fraser Darling was a, a real visionary uh, biologist who was interested in sea mammals and, and created this visionary community on Tenera. By the way, Alistair goes out to that farm because his best friend um, named Dougal, his real name was McDougal, and um, he, uh, Dougal introduced him to the Darlings. And they both laughed at how incompetent physically the Darlings were in terms of <laughs> farming and cutting peat and doing all these things. And uh, he, uh, he goes out there and he lives with them and that is the first time that sort of anybody writes in a book. Shall I read a little passage here? 
please do. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So this, because this is one of the first uh, first mentions. This is from a book that Darling wrote called um, Island Farm, which is a great book. And uh, so this is Darling writing about seeing Alistair. It's the first time we sort of have any kind of written record like that. I had been to a funeral on the mainland one day in May and was sitting with Donnie Fraser in his mother's house when a young man walked in whom I didn't know. He was fair, bright blue of eye, lean as a falcon with a well-poised head, and dressed in blue jersey, breeches, and heavy boots. I liked the make of him and was able to take such full stock because I was sitting in a dark corner. I was a little surprised when he asked for me though I had guessed from the, those boots that he was a climber and therefore no native of these parts. It was Alistair Cram, one of the score best climbers in Britain with every one of the 543 Munros or 3,000 foot hills in Scotland to his credit. And more than anything else, we knew him to be a friend of Kenneth Dougal McDougall, our own Dougal of the island years. When he walked in to Donnie Fraser's, he had been living in the hill for a month or more. What an extraordinarily open and innocent face for a lawyer. I had thought to myself immediately, but soon I saw how his face could be that of the mystic and idealist he is in one moment and of the sharp practical man of affairs the next. The dualism was in his character as well as in his face and the warring of those two sides had brought him here now, the mystic in the ascendant. He came across with us to stay for two or three days, and it seemed as if he were glad to sever by a mile or two of sea his few remaining bonds with a lawyer's life. Tenera became a stage in his journey, for he remained with us for three months and would have gone to Rona with us for the winter had not the war fallen upon all our plans. He left for Switzerland in August and got back only just in time. And now, as I write this, word has reached us that Alistair Cram, the seeker of experience, has fallen a prisoner in the second Libyan campaign and is now in Italy with the high Alps in his view from the prison camp. It's a fantastic extract, isn't it? <laughs> um, although you know, it's it's interesting the way it closes because that that must have been torture for someone like him who was an enthusiastic mountain climber, familiar with the Alps from his time in the forties, oh, yeah. and yet there he was stuck behind a wire, having to look at it so tantalisingly yeah. close, but yet so far. Absolutely. I like that passage, of course, because it's sort of talking about the two halves of, you know, Alistair's uh, character. And, uh, you know, there's this sharp uh, lawyer, you know, hyper rational. And then there's this mystic. And, uh, and Alistair is very clear about that in relationship to mountain climbing mm -hmm. and mountain climbing does for him uh, emotionally and psychologically. And it's, identical in so many ways to what escape does um and uh the it's not simply the lure of the mountains but there's something about the danger and uh he is a kind of a, a adrenaline addict in certain ways in terms of that experience but he uh thinks about it very philosophically in terms of 
the ideas about detachment and risk and uh, and what it takes to do these incredibly dangerous things, either escaping or you know snow climbing on the Matterhorn, uh, whichever it is, and uh, and talking about um, it in relationship to not having attachments uh, and um, and being uh, kind of free of them and it enables you to perform in ways you otherwise would be hampered with if you were sort of hampered by all these worldly fears. That, by the way, uh, is is talked about as well in uh, uh, things around night climbing, which uh, a, a number of people that Alistair was in prison were, in, were involved in. Does that have, ring a bell when I'm referring to night climbing? Is this the um, the Cambridge, uh, yes, ca- Cambridge thing where they climb, uh, they yep. clamber around the these ancient buildings, the the yep. old churches and the old colleges? It's something I've heard of, but it's not something I know yep. a great deal about. So please do go ahead. So uh, you're you're quite right. The Cambridge is sort of the place most uh, associated with night climbing, um, and there's a great book uh, called The Night Climbers with a uh, funny pseudonym in terms of the author. It was very legal, so if proctors uh, uh, saw you, you could have been expelled. Uh, it was really forbidden behavior. So it, it was done at night, and uh, you would uh, use the kind of footholds you would on a mountain on buildings, and you would climb, scale these, and eventually uh, summit. But the uh, way that it's described by um, people involved in night climbing is really interesting because they talk about transcending your fears and the type of liberation that occurs with that transcendence. And that's something that Alistair talks about quite a bit in terms of uh, detachment, in terms of uh, liberation of the soul and the spirit. So one of the people who Alistair uh, eventually ends up in uh, a Gestapo prison with in Prague is a person named Tojo Wedderburn, who's Sandy Wedderburn's brother, who's a, and they come from a very important family of uh, lawyers in Scotland. Yeah, it's and, uh, Shepherd and Wedderburn, I think, is the law firm in Scotland. It's, uh, it's a very large law firm still going. Alistair was close to the son, Sandy Wedderburn, who was... Um, a member of Lovett's Raiders, and who was second in command, and had developed a lot of strategies of mountain uh, warfare. Mm-hmm. And, um, Th- this is Lord Lovett, is that correct? No, yeah, this is uh, he was the second to Lord Lovett, exactly. Okay, uh, uh, Wedderburn, Sandy Wedderburn, and um, and he got uh, he died in a, a ridiculous prank of going uh, down a marble staircase uh, in Aquila uh, when they were uh, doing an R&R there and he was drunk on New Year's Eve and went down the staircase on his back and just flew into outer space and ended up floors below and was killed. As, as um, someone, I have to say, who has fallen down a marble staircase, it's very painful. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so his younger, and so his younger brother... Um, who was called Tojo in the war because they said he looked like uh, the Japanese general Tojo. Uh, it was kind of a smallest figure. He ends up uh, 
with Alistair uh, in Pankat, which is a, a prison in um, in Prague, mm-hmm. a, a Gestapo prison. But they actually they had been together in Marys Trubel before. Anyway, I'll sort of get back to talking about them. <laughs> but um, so Alistair, uh, you know, has this ambivalence. During the 30s, in terms of what he really wants to do with his life, and you can really feel how palpable it, it, palpable it is these these two poles that are pulling uh, him. Maybe in some ways his father was like that because his father was such an outdoorsman, and um, he was able to reconcile the two. He became a sheriff in in uh, in Perth. His father. But every moment he could, he was out uh, climbing, taking trips with his caravan, fishing, golf, whatever it was. Um, so there were these two poles that pulled Al- uh, Alistair in different directions. Mm-hmm. When the war came, uh, Alistair was one of the first people to enlist. He might have been a little older. Um, why he ended up in the Royal Artillery is kind of a mystery. I asked Isabel, his widow, what she thought, and she said, well, because he um, he was so good at math and calculations and that that was very valued in uh, being in the artillery. That would certainly make sense, yeah. It may have had something to, to do with his age. Um, he knew how to fly. He was a great sailor. Um, he was a competent person. Mm-hmm. Um and um, but he ended up with the 60th Regiment, which I think was called the Lincolnshire uh, 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 Rifles or, or Artillery, and um, uh, was not uh, at uh, Dunkirk, but shipped out fairly early to North Africa, where he was in uh, different engagements, and then. Uh, he was manning a, a, a forward position, a post which you would have four people in. His commanding officer was a person named Captain uh, Legard. He was the second in command, and then there were would have been uh, two um, other ranks with him. And they were at the Battle of City Rezeg, and that was in November. 1941. So we can ask them. Yeah, I thought I thought we might just draw on some detail of Sidi Rizeg itself. Um, so, as as I understand it, it, it was part of um, Operation Crusader, which was yes. essentially the the relief effort around Tobruk in in 41, which uh, was the first yep. relief of Tobruk, I think it was. So, in the North African campaign against Rommel, is is that correct? Absolutely, yes. And uh, it was, uh, you know, and it's worth knowing about, too, because mm. so many of the prisoners in Italy were taken there. Yes. Uh, were captured there. So they captured hundreds of prisoners there. And the arrangement was that the prisoners, if they were taken by Rommel and the Germans, they were handed over to the Italians. And that kind of made sense in a, in a couple of levels, I can understand. One is that it was really an Italian campaign. And, of course, the, you know, the Desert Fox and uh, Rommel and the Germans 
are when we think of the desert war in North Africa, we often think of them first. But that was a, a, a group that was formed by Hitler to support the Italians. Yeah. So the, uh, the Italians were, it was their campaign. And uh, the Germans were there in support of that. And so prisoners who were taken were handed over to the Italians. And then they were taken by ship to Italy, which, of course, was much easier than having to take them all the way to Germany. Far more accessible, and, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the problem was that um, there were Italian warships. The, uh, the Allies had no knowledge that there were prisoners on these ships. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were sunk. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was kind of a disaster. It was a dangerous for, crossing, absolutely. Um, very dangerous crossing. And uh, a lot of these ships you know, were hit. And so Alistair ended up in one of these ships. He was captured on November 23rd, 1941, an advanced position at City Rezeg. So City Rezeg was a, uh, its significance was that it was an airfield. And so gaining control of that airfield at the beginning of the campaign, which had started not much uh, earlier than the 23rd when Alistair was captured, the attack towards Tobruk, they first hit this airfield. And those were the sort of the first part of this battle, which they got control of and then they were pushed back and they got control of it and they were pushed back. So it was a it was a real tug of war. It was the largest tank battle in uh, the history of the war up to that time. Okay. And it was considered to be the first British victory in the war. Right. Okay. Um, so it was an important battle, but in a certain, it was slightly pyrrhic in the, in the sense that um, both sides lost a, a tremendous number of personnel and also of materials. But it, the Germans were pushed back and it went well into December, even though the battle around City Rezeg was over uh, soon after November 23rd. So Alistair was um, was captured, and um, he ended up on a ship, as we were discussing it, that's going to Italy. And um, the ship, they're all kept down the uh, foxhole, and um, it's a, a, a storm comes up. And everybody down there, when they're just crammed down there, is vomiting and has dysentery. It's really a horrific scene. And this, uh, SBO is a, uh, a person named Skipper Palmer, who is, uh, again, when you read the escape literature, Skipper Palmer is one of those great, great characters. Uh, he was called Pirate Palmer as well and had... Gone up and down. Great name. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah a a, we're a fan of great names here on the podcast. Yeah, Skipper Palmer was really a great character. And he, um, so he was a, a blockade runner at Tobruk. And uh, he did all this in a three masted Italian ship that he had captured. So he was doing this with, with sails, right. which is kind of. <laughs> Which is really great, you know? It's a, a and, real throwback, uh, isn't it? <laughs> it's a real throwback. And uh, Skipper Palmer had been, uh, he, was, um, he wasn't captured, but his boat was sank 
he, Skip Palmer was from uh, Australia, and he went to England in the first war to um, become part of the Navy, and his ship was uh, sunk by the Germans on the way, and he spent quite a lot of time in this life raft waiting to get picked up. And um, the ship that, uh, that sank him, I believe was very, very close to the ship that he captured in the second war and used as a, as a blockade runner. He was a legendary figure, uh, Skipper Palmer. And he was one of the only people, he was the SBO on this boat that was taking them to Italy. And he was one of the only people who wasn't seasick and vomiting. <laughs> and he came up with an idea of, uh, mutiny of taking over the, of the ship. He had it all, planned in terms of um you know who was going to take the main uh machine gun that was set up in the foredeck and um alistair was involved in helping to lead another group alistair was one of the 10 able-bodied men left uh in terms of not being too sick to actually act and uh the plan didn't come off there, were, uh, there was too much opposition. The second command, this guy Macquarie, who was uh, from South Africa, was following uh, Palmer around as he was enlisting help. And as soon as Palmer would leave, Macquarie would say, this is suicide. We shouldn't be doing this. This is a terrible idea. And so uh, Palmer wanted to kill the guy. And <laughs> in any case, the Italians got whiff of it. They handed out extra rifles and arms and they were more vigilant and it, so the plan didn't never took place and they ended up going back to libya where uh he they were interned in another prison camp where they spent a fair amount of time and then they were flown to sicily so they were uh, flown on these large cargo planes these italian cargo planes and they were um they were flown to italy and that's when Alistair ends up in Castle Vitrano. Okay. So, so is, um, is that his first serious camp then? Um, yeah, he was in. Uh, he was in two two camps in um, in Tarhuna and one other camp in uh, Darna. Uh, in, Bar in Bardia, uh, his, his Bardia. His, yeah. his escape report says it was in Bardia. Yeah. So he was in two camps in uh, Libya, but you know, again, he's really he's waiting there yeah. to be shipped into yeah. Italy. Even though he does make two attempts in these camps, he does. And, yes, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, and then he ends up in Castle Vitrano. But you know, Castle Vitrano is really a very makeshift camp too, because it's an ancient uh, monastery and um, or con it's actually a convent. And it's rehabbed in a certain way that's not going to be a permanent prisoner of war camp. And they're uh, not kept there that long, but they're kept there long enough for Alistair to make an escape. And so Alistair makes arguably, you know, one of the first escape, really uh, serious escape attempts in Italy. And um, it's uh, right around Christmas time, just after. So he's captured in November uh, 23rd, 1941. They have the events that I mentioned, the, the boat that goes out and comes back. They're in two camps. 
And by the time he ends up in Castle Vetrano, where they've uh, sent them by plane, it's, it's Christmas Eve, more or less. And a couple of days after that, Alistair makes an escape. And it's uh, pure mountaineering skill. He sees that this uh, one bathroom that people are using, which is guarded, really doesn't have a roof on it. And that he can use the handholds to climb it very easily. And the drop on the outside is not uh, uh, that bad. It's about nine feet or so. And he is able to get out in the night, cross uh, a river, end up just for hours running until he finally ends up in an orange grove and rests. And that begins this incredible uh, two-week journey through Sicily, where he plans to steal a boat and take it to Malta. I was going to say it's it's quite a bold move to make an escape from Sicily, which is of course an island. You know, it's it's yeah. It, it's it's almost like he's looking for the difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> you can't yeah. take the easy way out. No, absolutely not. You know, um, Sicily is a long. Yeah. I mean, even going to Malta, as you mentioned, Sicily is. Yeah. It, it's a it's a stretch through as yeah. as you mentioned earlier. What is a very dangerous stretch of water and. Uh, from both the Allied side, who wouldn't necessarily immediately recognise him as a as a friend, and from right. the from the various Axis forces that were crossing the Mediterranean as well, who certainly wouldn't have recognised him as a friend, um, who and would have been on the hunt for him. So um, immediately you're thinking, uh, bold escape effort here. It is. Uh, Alistair himself thought it was kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But he had no papers, you know, he had no food. He's, uh, you know, living off the land. And he learns that all boats are restricted uh, to a certain limit uh, that they can be in the, uh, away from the shore. So they can't be more than 10 miles from shore, for example, right. uh, during certain hours. And Alistair does the calculation, because he was a sailor as well, mm -hmm. and saw that he would not be able to get to Malta before the planes that were patrolling this area came over and bombed him. So he, he would have been there as a sitting duck. But he stuck with it, and he planned on doing this. And after several days, he finds a boat. It's too heavy to move, and it's locked as well. Um, and um, he decides that he's going to go inland, get food, come back, get somebody to help him, and launch this boat. And he uh, finds a, a, a mule uh, driver who's got a, a several mules that he's uh, taking with him and asks this fellow if he can come home with him and get something to eat. And the guy's scared to death. And uh, he, he's, Alistair thinks he says yes. He can't. He can hardly understand him. He's got such a thick Sicilian accent. <laughs> and 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 then all of a sudden, they're walking up a cobblestone street and turn uh, into a doorway and are in this you know big opening that you would find for coaches and whatnot in sort of city palaces. And they end up inside, and the lights get turned on. And it's uh, Carabinieri uh, headquarters. 
And so he's delivered them. This uh, this uh, mule driver has delivered Alistair uh, into the hands of the police once again. So he's recaptured. And um, he, the, the fellow who turned him in, this mule driver, comes back the next day and apologizes to Alistair. And he apologizes to him because Alistair was telling everybody he met that he was a German deserter and that he was part of the German army. Even though his uniform, well, there was not, the, actually, the desert uniforms between the Germans and the British weren't so tremendously different. And um, these sort of tan fatigues. But he was trying to pass himself off as a German. And when he was captured in this prison, he berated everybody saying that I'm a German. How dare you, you know, stop me and ask me these questions and I should be uh, let free immediately. And, and they call German speakers from the village in Castle Adrano to see if he actually is a German. It turns out that these German speakers know less German than uh, Alistair, whose German was good. And, um, and then they call uh, Carabinieri headquarters in Palermo. And they find out that indeed there is a all points bulletin out for an escaped uh, British prisoner of war. And they get the description and they see that it's indeed Alistair. And they all start to cheer because they've caught him. And, um, and of course, Alistair's pretty unhappy, uh, but he en ends up staying there for a little while because the uh, Palermo Carabinieri are going to send people to take him to Palermo. And so Alistair becomes this uh, object of incredible curiosity and pride too. And the whole village kind of marches through the prison to have a look at him and bring him food, which he uh, devours uh, nonstop during the days he's there. He becomes quite close to the, to the family who runs the prison. And the name of that prison in that town Racalmuto. It was a very remote mining town, Racalmuto. And, you know, and he had uh, very warm feelings about these people. He had been traveling now for two weeks in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And um, when he finally, uh, he, he, he's moved to Palermo. And from Palermo, he's brought to Capua. And when he gets to Capua, uh, which is really meant to be a transit camp that ends up being more permanent for a lot of people because all of these uh, new prisoners are creating a sort of giant flood of people that have to be uh, dealt with, which the Italians aren't prepared at this moment to take so many prisoners. And so the scene at Capua, which we again visited, which is uh, not far from Naples, is really uh, desperate. And so because it's a temporary camp, it's not meant for people to be there uh, such long term that they have a theater or they have a library, as, as you know, they did in many camps. Mm -hmm. And it was very muddy and it was, uh, they weren't getting food uh, packages. And so Alistair describes it, I'll, I'll read Alistair's description when he arrives and he sees his, uh, his fellow uh, Castle Vitrano prisoners who are moved almost immediately after Alistair's escape are moved to Capua from where they're going to be distributed to different permanent camps. But you can see the kind of divide now that's developing between 
who was uh, physically so involved in escape and, and, and keeping himself fit, um, which he does through a, a type of exercise that I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, and other prisoners who are sort of overtaken by the greatest enemy of being a POW, which is lethargy, and uh, that really can sap your strength. No purpose. So Alistair says, I found my late comrades pinched and wan. They were packed in wooden bungalows bed to bed. The cold was intense. The lavatories outside and the food meager in the extreme. In spite of minor hardship, I was well fed, tanned, and hard as nails, and more than ever determined to escape. Capua looked an easy nut to crack. The double apron wire, the bad lighting, and stupidity of the centuries promised well. Three factors made me delay. Lack of food, the appalling weather of raging winds, sleet, and blinding rainstorms, and lack of local knowledge. You can see Alistair is kind of on a, a sort of different plane in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And his, uh, his exercise program, which he's done since childhood, is very intense. And they're called Mullers. And so either you have any familiarity with what, it, what the Mullers are? No, I don't know. Is it a form of calisthenics? Is that right? It's kind of a form, yeah. It's developed by a Danish... Uh, a, a lieutenant, military man, and uh, he he develops this plan, which is 15 minutes of these exercises done completely naked, ending with uh, these very bizarre contortions in which you sort of scrape your skin uh, and all parts of your body. And so the main figure is this god of, of scraping uh, from Greece who helps develop this 15-minute uh, program, the, the Mullers, which many people in early uh, 20th century were doing. One of the most famous was Franz Kafka, who used to do them in Prague in front of his big window naked, and he would do them twice a day and really swore by them. And in the British Army, in the trenches, it was required that the soldiers actually did these Mullers because they could stay in shape in these very confined quarters in 15-minute exercises, which you're not really moving very much. Everybody who uh, knew Alistair during these days and writes about him all talks about the air bath right. and uh, scrubbing <laughs> and, uh, and washing him. And, and at first, people are kind of making fun of him. And mm -hmm. then... Uh, and then he becomes, you know, this figure of awe. And so, uh, you know, people have a, a different level of admiration in terms of what he's doing. But he was a fanatic in relationship to doing the Mullers, mm -hmm. something that is, uh, is written about by everybody who observed Alistair during this period. Interestingly enough, I asked Isabel, his widow, about the Mullers, and if uh, they got together in 1946, right after the war, mm -hmm. and she didn't know anything about the Mullers, which was kind of surprising mm -hmm. because Whoa. even when Alistair goes to Edinburgh University, the school paper, you know, talks about 
him in relationship to doing these these moors. I'm going to actually read that little that little passage. Well, here is this is actually from 1933, the Edinburgh University newspaper, which was covering cross country personalities, and it wrote about him, the undoubted excellence of our vice captain as a runner across country can be attributed both to the fact that he combines the stamina and endurance of the expert climber with an unusual turn of speed and to the fact that he is invariably in magnificent training surely there was never a man more fit than cram he positively radiates vitality muller is his private deity and his exercises sacred rites performed at 7.30 a.m. with a sacred fervor which sleepy Cowan men well know. He has, too, a missionary zeal which has produced surprising effects on the section. Muller is, uh, is a very interesting character. Um, did, you, did you say he was a, a, a Danish soldier? Yeah. Uh, he was a Danish soldier, and then uh, I guess after World War One, he ends up being a uh, inspector of uh, institutions, uh, hospitals, and mental institutions in Denmark, and develops this system and moves to London and starts uh, publishing uh, a whole host of uh, of these little manuals. Okay. There's the the Daily Five Minutes. Uh, morals, sex, and happiness, my breathing system, my system, 15 minutes work a day for health's sake, my system for ladies, and, uh, and on and on. And, uh, and Alistair uh, devoured them. I think of that in relationship to Alistair, who, uh, not that he was a weakling, but he wasn't very big. No, you know, he, he, was, he was quite slight and um, yeah, or yeah. wiry, you might say. Yeah, uh, he was about five foot eight. And uh, which is not that tall, although in that day, a lot of these prisoners were not as tall as people are today. Mm -hmm. um, our diets have really changed us quite a bit. Um, but, you know, he had these incredibly powerful legs mm -hmm. and his climbing and his walking it was, it were really extraordinary. And so when he did uh, escape, with uh, Jack Pringle, who was really the only other person he escaped with, uh, because again, he preferred to escape alone. Pringle just couldn't keep up with him. And, and uh, coldest last stop, Pringle uh, complains about, um, you know, in a, a humorous way, but he complains that Alistair just wouldn't slow down. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> gave, him, gave him some tips about how to walk, uh, but, you know, he, he just, he found it very, very difficult. So that, uh, I'm jumping ahead, but I will make the connection, so that later on, when they're escaping from Gavi, uh, they're going to escape uh, the three uh, of them together, meaning David Sterling, who's arrived in Gavi, mm -hmm. and now Sterling and Pringle, who were friends before the war, are going to escape with Alistair. And Sterling, of course, has a lot of training because he was training to climb Everest before the war. And um, 
Alistair and Sterling become quite close and friendly because they're both mountaineers. It's probably and, also worth saying at this point that, that this is David Sterling, the founder of the SAS. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, so it's um, not just any old Sterling. <laughs> that's right. Um, it's David Sterling, founder of the SAS. And so um, uh, they decide that they are going to have to climb into Switzerland through the Alps. And they decide that because... Uh, Alistair and uh, Sterling speak fluent Italian. Uh, I'm sorry, Alistair and Pringle speak fluent Italian, and they were going to go by train, mm -hmm. which would have been easy for them. But Sterling was six foot seven and didn't speak any uh, Italian and was a kind of awkward figure. And so they uh, decide they're going to have to walk. And Pringle is. Uh, is kind of petrified crossing <laughs> the Alps at night with these two guys who are real mountaineers. Anyway, he, he, um, he's in some company, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, but the way that Alistair stays in shape is these Muller exercises, which he does religiously at seven thirty a.m. every day throughout the war, and everybody who sees Alistair. Uh, remembers this mm -hmm. about him. so um, so he ends up in, in Capua and um, not long after and Capua is a terrible scene and uh, not long after it, he's told to get ready to leave for Achille where he's going to be uh, sent to a punishment camp and so he gets on a train early in the morning going up the Apennines and there's a terrible snowstorm. He's got two really pathetic guards and he uh, says something that's clever and very theatrical and which is uh, a large part, I think, of the uh, attraction of escaping as well for Alistair, who was in many ways a kind of inhibited uh, figure but in escape he liked taking on other personalities he really enjoyed that mm -hmm. and so he um when he got on the train to go to aquila um he uh, feigned this terrible leg problem and that he could hardly walk and um he really hammed it up tremendously <laughs> and his feeling which was smart was that they wouldn't watch him as closely because they thought he couldn't walk mm -hmm. and uh, that they would kind of ignore him because he was on a regular passenger train going up the Apennines. And, um, and indeed, uh, somebody came by when it was discovered that the train couldn't get through. They were sending another train down from the mountains and they would leave one train and walk and get on the other train and go up into the mountains. And the person who comes up to them uh, to tell them this asks if they thought that the British prisoner would be able to walk that far. Right. Uh, so Alistair had really succeeded. And then they stop because of the snow is so thick and that everybody's told that they're going to have to get off. And um, they take their eyes off Alistair and everybody's getting off one side of the train. Alistair uh, very uh, discreetly gets off the back part of the other end of the train jumps out and ends up in snow that's practically up to his armpits. And, um, but he starts to trudge along. And um, uh, soon enough, it's discovered that he's, uh, he's escaped. 
he can hardly move because the uh, snow is so thick. And they say that they're going to shoot him, but they forget their uh, ammunition. And they <laughs> eventually walk back to the train. And when they get back in the train, Alistair's now walking kind of normally. And they comment on, oh, you're, so you're feeling a lot better, are you? And <laughs> they, 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 they sort of didn't figure it out that uh, Alistair had been pretending <laughs> to be lame. Um, and so... I'm not sure what escape that brings us up to, probably about five or six. Um, but uh, then he ends up in Aquila, and he ends up in what's known as the Spanish Fort. And this is a fort uh, high up in the Apennines where it's called the Spanish Fort because at one point under Napoleon, the, uh, the Spaniards had taken over this part of Italy and uh, they were ruling it and built this a very, very impressive fort in Aquila. And so he's brought into this rather luxurious uh, fort and is given this room with a fireplace and, you know, uh, antique furniture and a writing table and a nightlight. And he it's wonderful. And he's figuring, I'm being punished and I'm being treated like a king here. And everybody who's not being punished is living in these horrible conditions in capital, which I just left. And from uh, from there, he's uh, meets other. The, most of the people who are uh, in prison in this punishment camp are uh, Italian officers who are being uh, punished for various deeds that they've done. Although a number of other people are sent up to Aquila, such as Michael Pope and. Not sure if Anthony Dean Drummond is at one point, but in any case, he, Alistair is eventually given a pretty much free roam uh, of the castle, and it's there that he makes uh, a contact with this uh, girl, a young woman, who it, he calls it, uh, the uh, Bambola Rosa. Get David. This is the Red Doll. That's the Red Doll. Yeah. So, and it's uh, it's unclear. You know uh, how far that relationship goes. It's 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 a romance. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. And um, she she wants to escape with him, mm -hmm. and she wants him to come to the house. And they make a plan. And Alistair said, "You know, I can't just walk out." And she said, "I will bring you clothes," which she does from her brother, who's uh, in North Africa. And she has suits of his, and she brings the clothes to him. And um, right before he's going to escape, they get wind of it. And he has a whole plan for getting out of this castle, um, which is complicated and dramatic, going out of the window and climbing up the wall, going back inside, and finally crossing over the uh, bridge over the moat, which is being used by a lot of new recruits because this has become a recruiting center as well as a punishment camp. Calling it a punishment camp, you get an image of something that's very dreary and constricting, but th this was a, a rather nice place um, that he was in. And um, at that point, they realize what he's up to and uh, he's shipped off to Padula, which is even nicer than uh, than uh, the Spanish fort, because this is a Carthusian monastery, it's Chortosa, 
and I don't know if you've been to Chartosos or this means anything to you uh, who they, these uh, monks were, but these were the aristocrats of monastic orders. They okay. had started in France and any Carthusian monastery is, uh, usually it was the second son of a noble family that were sent to these monasteries, which was a life of solitary confinement. I mean, it was something that no child of 13 would ever have chosen for themselves. They can't speak. They are live in these uh, single uh, apartments that are made for them, which are very nice. But nevertheless, they eat in silence. If they exercise and go out, they have to wear hoods. The only time they do anything together is chanting. It's a, it's a difficult life for a young man to have to uh, live in, and it makes a perfect prison camp because there's it's split into two halves. It's so much like uh, Kolditz's with the commandanture on one part and the prison on the other part. Okay. So the front part is the administrators who are the interface with the world outside of the monastery. And they have all their offices and, ca and chapels and whatnot in that part. And then in the other part where the prisoners are, are put are about 28 or so uh, apartments around a courtyard, which is the, uh, the largest, said to be the largest monastery courtyard in Europe. They're really, uh, it's a really extraordinary space. And in the book, I have a picture of the staircase and it's, a it's quite magnificent. Alistair, according to Isabel, got a bill after the war from <laughs> the Italians for uh, things that had been destroyed in the monastery. Whether that's <laughs> or not, I don't know. But um, everybody who went into that monastery, like George Miller, uh, and if you've read uh, Colin Armstrong's book, Life Without Ladies, that, which is a really fine book, they are all just awed by this structure. So he ends up there and it's divided uh, in two halves. The apartments where the monks had lived are for the senior officers and usually about six or seven would be in each one. So you can tell how luxurious they were for the young monks from these royal families that they had these apartments of several rooms that of course were prisons to them, mm -hmm. but nevertheless they could fit uh, six or eight officers when they were converted into a prison. The junior officers, of which Alistair was one, had the ambulatorio up on the top, and that was basically one giant uh, room. They all slept in this giant uh, halls that uh, went all around uh, the cloister without any divisions whatsoever. So it was um, it was a difficult space for them, and um, that's where Alistair becomes the first person to escape from Padula, and that's where Pringle comes up to him and asks if, if he'll partner up with him to escape, which Alistair resists at first, but then decides to. So Pringle is with the Hussars, the uh, Eighth the Hussars and uh, is also a very, very interesting figure. Mm -hmm. he, his uh, mother's from Chicago. His father was a, 
the Scottish from um, the uh, the Outer Hebrides, and he went to Jamaica. His father uh, married one of the early Jewish uh, families into the families in um, Jamaica, and eventually built up uh, an incredible plantation of a hundred thousand acres, and. Pringle's father, who by now we would say is Jamaican, moves to Chicago, marries this woman, and uh, Pringle ends up living actually in the next town from where I live. He was um, uh, next to Cambridge. And that's that's where he went to school. And then he, the town that he was in was Belmont, I'm in Cambridge. And then um, the he goes to Harvard, but he has this vision that he wants to be part of the British Empire, and he wants to be in the cavalry. He's a romantic, mm-hmm. and he drops out of Harvard and he goes to Sandhurst, where he's a little bit older than uh, other cadets at Sandhurst, and he graduates there and ends up in. Uh, India and then Africa, and he his main interest in the pre-war uh, colonies is polo. Right. And he lives and which seems to have been the story of Pringle's life, who's a who's a very charismatic uh, figure, but speaking to his daughter, who has been very very helpful, Pringle always sort of lived beyond his means. And um, which I guess became the story of his father and the other children of this doctor who went to Jamaica, because the eight hundred the hundred thousand acres disappeared within a generation. Right. And, um, I think it was drinking and gambling. But in any case, that's a big change. Yeah, that's it's a very big change. But uh, Pringle, uh, and when you see Pringle uh, pictures of Pringle, he he kind of looks like David Niven. He's he's very dashing. <laughs> with a pencil mustache and uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting uh, you know the, the, there's another interesting parallel with, with him here which is that there, w- there was another cavalry officer in the Hussars who was fond of polo and lived beyond his means uh, who ah. was of course Churchill um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and also a prisoner of war who, who escaped yeah. uh, from the Boers in, in the Boer War so yeah there, there's there's some very interesting parallels going on in this one. That's really interesting. Um, well, Pringle is um, pretty. He's he's not only living beyond his means. Obviously, he's sort of create, starting to create debt in this pre-war situation that he finds himself in North Africa, and so he asks to be transferred. He gets himself transferred to uh, Kenya, and. Um, the timing for somebody who's a career soldier couldn't have been worse. He's transferred the day the war begins. Right. So he's, you know, he's sent to this outpost, which he wants to go to because he's got to get away from this this nightlife, this polo life, these ponies, and all these things he can't afford that are creating debt. And so uh, he feels he can recover if he sort of, it's almost like a, a sort of rehab or something. <laughs> and uh, he ends up going down to um, Kenya. 
at the moment, the you know, the war would have sort of uh, rescued him from all of this. Uh, he seconded to a unit which is when these sort of light artillery units uh, with uh, jeeps that have, um, uh, I don't know if they would have called them jeeps, but um, they have machine guns on them. It's a very fast motorized units that fights its way all the way up through um, Ethiopia, which is, you know, becomes part of the campaign in North Africa. Mm-hmm. And he wins along the way, uh, military cross and MC for mm-hmm. bravery and leadership. And it's from there when he gets to the Abyssinian battles that he rejoins the Hussars again. And he gets back to his old unit just in time for Sidi Rezeg. And he's captured the same day as Alistair. Right, okay. So um, he ends up in different prisons from Alistair. Uh, He makes a couple of escapes. One, a pretty daring escape in which he uh, jumps out of a train when he's being uh, sent from pretty far north in Italy down to this new prison in Padula. And um, he jumps out of the train and quickly dresses up as a woman. And the train halts to find him. And he actually walks right by the guards who don't realize that it's him he's you know dressed in a, in a dress by now that's amazing and one of his leg pants drops oh, and falls no. down and he's recaptured oh. so he ends up in padula and that's where Al, you know alistair is um by now alistair even though it hasn't been that long is a legend i mean he's the baron he's escaped six seven times already and mm-hmm. uh very uh, short period of time. Everybody knows he's going to be out of Padula in no time at all, and and Pringle wants to go with him. Um, He wants a partner. And they have this sort of period of courtship, and they finally decide they're going to escape together. Alistair liked uh, Jack a lot, and and Pringle had a lot to bring to the table because he was a very good uh, Italian speaker. Mm -hmm. So... Alistair was a good Italian speaker with a Scottish accent, but Pringle was a, a superb Italian speaker with a good Italian accent. And so they um, escape more than once from Padula, and their first escape, they don't get very far before a, a foreman of one of the labor crews sees them coming, and uh, he blows the whistle on them, it's said that Pringle and Alistair think that it's because of the packs that they're carrying that this fellow who blows the whistle on them thinks that they're black marketeers. Right. But, but George Miller says that, no, it was because of their boots. And uh, that is really part of the whole discussion that uh, a lot of people uh, talk about, such as the the person who uh, wrote uh, Love and Death in the Apennines and um, whose name is... Eric Newby. Eric Newby. Thank you very much. That's okay. It, it happens to be sitting underneath Called Its Last Stop by Jack Pringle on my bookshelf. It is a great <laughs> book. Newby talks about the 
difficulties of escaping from Italy and the fact that it's more difficult than escaping from Germany. And one of the and he and a number of people had made those claims. You know, on the one hand, it's fairly obvious that it would be more difficult because there aren't a lot of foreign workers as there are in Germany in, at this time, so that in Germany you could sort of get lost amongst all these foreign workers and hearing people speak with accents was very, very common because you have all these guest workers or slave laborers who are brought there, which you don't have in Italy. But the other point is, where do you go? It's surrounded by water on three sides or it's the mountains on the other side. So getting out is very difficult. Mm. And there are only, uh, before the armistice, there are only six successful escapes. And you're talking about many prisoners. Mm -hmm. So it was a a very uh, uh, difficult place to escape from. And uh, Newby adds to that discussion by saying that one of the things that made it so difficult was that the the, uh, Italians were so perceptive in terms of people's dress and that they really looked people over in a way that the Germans were fairly uh, oblivious to. Here's a newbie talking about it. I'm going to read a little passage in, uh, f- from, uh, from the book that we were mentioning where he talks about this. It was very difficult to travel in Italy if you did get out. The Italians are fascinated by minutiae of dress and the behavior of their fellow men, perhaps to a greater degree than almost any other race in Europe. And the ingenious subterfuges and disguises which escaping prisoners of war habitually resorted to and which were often enough to take in the Germans were hardly ever sufficiently genuine looking to fool even the most myopic Italian. The kind of going over to which an escaping Anglo-Saxon was subjected by other travelers was usually enough to finish him off unless he was a professional actor or spoke fluent Italian. And indeed, that's what it was claimed by Miller that in the first escape that Pringle and Alistair made, it was their boots that gave them away, uh, that the foreman of this work party saw them and said, hey, I don't think that they're Italian. Um, <laughs> and, and of so, course, an Italian would recognize a leather made patented shoe a mile off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is uh, is appointed. So they are brought back in and um, they make a second escape, which is is pretty brave and in some ways kind of reminiscent of Pat Reed's famous escape from Colditz mm-hmm. in which um, they're improvising as they're escaping and finding an underground uh, window that they can slide through barely. And it's that type of escape that they figure out a way of getting into another part of the camp, um, going from the rectory in this uh, oval window, slipping by all of the sleeping carabinieri and guards, and then locating a way to actually get out of Padula. And they walk for several days up into the mountains, living off the land, And then they kind of make a mistake 
in going through this town late at night thinking it's going to be very quiet and there's people out everywhere and they're spotted and they get picked up after trying to go through all of these uh, back alleys and whatnot and they're picked up and they're brought into uh basically it's kind of a liquor store uh, filled with barrels of wine where they're asked to show their papers they claim uh one of them claims to be a german who's being sent to a new post and pringles italian was good enough he actually claims to be an italian and there alistair does something that's really interesting which i think separates him from most other escapers almost all other escapers is that he immediately escapes again so <laughs> mostly when you people when the escapers are captured they stay captured they make another escape attempt but almost always after they return to the camp they've come from but um but pringle i'm sorry but alistair um always tried to immediately escape again and he was smart and he knew that that was a smart thing to do because people who write about escape and alistair wrote a little manual later on which was never published but is in his papers which i have he he says that you should try and escape as soon as you can because the people who've captured you are not professional guards and often they're tired and they're in battle and they're not watching closely enough so escape quickly and as soon as you can uh you won't have, you'll be in a temporary prison even if that and so alistair mutters to jack in this liquor store we've got to get out of here it the game's up and he's uh basically pushes his way to the door and flees out uh of the door and pringle in a wonderful act of self-sacrifice then goes to the door and blocks it and gives himself up but uh stops anybody from leaving the liquor store and by then alistair's disappeared and so uh he, he's now on the run alone going through this town and for uh several more days he's traveling in through the mountains and eventually gets recaptured with an enormous search parties are out looking for him. so they knew in padula which uh, you know they there was uh, probably 1500 people in padula maybe a little more but they knew that um they the italians were organizing a camp that would be a true punishment camp that would be absolutely impregnable from the point of view of the italians and the italians were trying to scare prisoners as much as possible by describing it you know as basically sort of being buried in this this stone <laughs> sarcophagi which was the you know this prison that nobody had seen uh in a place called gavi not far from genoa so some people were intimidated by that and didn't want to escape because they would have been sent to gavi put on the list and others like alister uh wanted to make sure that they got another chance at trying to escape before they were shipped off to gavi they knew that they were on the list i mean alister pringle would have been probably one and two on any list of serial escapers that were going to be sent to what has been described as the cold hits of italy 
Yes, I'm and, and not without reason either. I mean, there there is definitely a similarity between the two. If only it's the it's the big castle s yes. building on top of a, yeah. a a high hill, and uh, yeah, the, there's de- as well as being the the punishment camp for the es- escapee bad boys, the impregnable escape camp. Uh, there there are certainly yes. some comparisons to be drawn there. Absolutely, and. There are only two people who were in both camps, uh, and that's Jack Pringle and David Sterling. And uh, uh, Pringle says it was a more difficult camp to get out of than Colditz. Right. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's quite the recommendation. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but everybody who was in Gavi talks about it with a strange sort of romantic nostalgia, saying that as miserable as a place it was, this stone, this uh, first millennium uh, built around the year 1000, stone fortress carved out of the rock on this hillside, which is strategically placed at the crossroads between Genoa and Venice, um, so that that was its sort of raison d'etre, that as miserable as it was and didn't have the type of theater, library, and common spaces as a place like Colditz, which had been a hunting palace of the kings, mm-hmm. that Gavi was was rough place. But people said the spirit there was so extraordinary that it was, you know, and this is a quote from Colin Armstrong, it was the best prison that he was in. And that gets said over and over again in all the books where people talk about being in Gavi. The Italians were were frightening people that uh, you did not want to be sent to Gavi. You know, that was like a hellhole from which no one was ever going to emerge. So people made attempts to get out before the first trains left for them for Gavi, and Alistair and and Jack were now in solitary confinement when the first trains left, and Alistair, in his uh, escape from his escape from that uh, liquor store, that he um, had hurt his knee very badly. He misjudged jumping over a canal, thinking that there was. Uh, solid soil there but it was actually just kind of slime over the water so he didn't realize in the dark that it was water and he really hurt his leg and his knee uh, jumping across so he quite uh, skillfully convinced the doctor in Padula that he was in great great pain and needed pain medicine and he collected this pain medicine. He wasn't taking any of it. He was collecting it for an escape. His plan was that on the train, they would drug the guards and they they would offer them wine and fill it with these sleeping pills, which is what Alistair was actually, I said pain medicine, but it was sleeping pills Mm -hmm. because Alistair said he couldn't sleep because the pain was so bad. So he collected this enormous amount of sleeping pills that when they took the train from Padula in the south up to Gavi, which is 30 miles northeast of Genoa, 
they plan to drug the guards and all <laughs> jump out of the train. It's like a rolled dolls that what, what is Danny Champion of the World. Yes, yeah. They um they give sleeping pills to the pheasants and capture you know rather than shooting the the birds they they basically uh, knock them out. It's, it's um <laughs> as, as a you know that was one of my favorite <laughs> childhood books. I, I had no idea that there was this actually happened in real life. Whether the two are related is another matter, but. Uh, well, they so it succeeded to an extent, and um, they gave them the wine, and the guards fell asleep. And the first guy to go out was a South African pilot named Lorenz, and he got out. And Alistair was next, and Alistair's halfway out the window, and the guards come and pull him back in and hit him with rifle butts, oh. and he ends up at Gavi. So Gavi, uh, again, is a, is a place that was a castle that got turned into a fortress. And it shares, to a certain degree, elements of coldness in that there's a feeling that these layers of structure, which have now occurred for a thousand years, there are all sorts of hidden passageways and if one can find them, you can tunnel into them, and then there'll be a tunnel, which will be known as the exit tunnel that the rulers would have used when the castle was about to fall. There would have to be these secret exits. And so most of the efforts at Gavi were about finding them. But again, Kolditz was much bigger and had many different uh, secret passageways. Kolditz at one point had 700 prisoners. Mm -hmm. There were, just in terms of successful escapes, there were 30, 32 home runs, and there was 100 and some odd different attempts. There were many nationalities mm -hmm. as well. In Gavi, there were only at the most 176 prisoners with about 25 to 40 uh, ORs who were acting as batmen. So it was a much smaller group of people who were watched much uh, more closely in much uh, starker situations. There was an upper compound and a lower one, and the upper one was connected by this uh, stone walkway, which was also closed at night. You couldn't move between them. But all of the prisoners would meet for uh, meals together which is, again, a difference between many of the German prisoners where people messed together, but you didn't have one enormous sort of dining hall. And in this situation in Gavi, there was one dining hall where prisoners all ate together and did various activities, including having the news read by special people. When Alistair came to uh, Gavi, he was immediately put in solitary confinement which he protested as a lawyer, knowing well the Geneva Convention, which said that if you had done 30 days of solitary, you had to have a break in between. You could not be uh, given two back-to-back -back terms. And he had just done 30 days in solitary at Padula. And so he protested that. And the person who was the commandant, uh, Giuseppe Moscatelli, 
who was nicknamed the Bat, but also Joe Grapes, which is a translation of his name, said, you know, you guys are gangsters, you're not prisoners of war, you know, basically screw the Geneva Convention, and which is what happened with Alistair. Not only did he get a second 30 days, but they tagged on uh, two extra weeks, which they did because the censors read in his letter where he said something to the effect that these Italians are no gentlemen. And that's all he said in the letter, and that earned him, they said that was an insult on the honor of the Italian army, and they gave him an extra two weeks. Wow. So wow. when Alistair got out of solitary, he actually, which people who are in these uh, very tight claustrophobic situations where there's little light and no sound, there's a certain name for this disease where you have to regain your uh, distance vision once again. And your hearing is really impaired as well. It's a whole process in terms of sort of <laughs> getting back to normal once again. Mm. Given that yeah. they were in direct contravention of the Geneva Convention, saying that they weren't gentlemen doesn't seem like a particularly extreme criticism. Yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, no, it's it really is uh, quite uh, quite extraordinary. And there was another character uh, named Jocelyn, who's uh, Peter Jocelyn, who's was brought there for a similar reason, something that he had had said in uh, in a letter home. So um, Alistair's let out around summer. It's, uh, it's a beautiful time there. He can see the, uh, the Southern Alps from, from the castle that he's in. He, it's an area that he climbed extensively in before the war. He knows it very well. He's anxious to find a way to get there. And it's in that situation that the cistern tunnel is uh, begun, which will become the first and only successful escape from Gavi during the war. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop the episode there as that is the end of part one. We had an amazing conversation with David and he was so incredibly kind of his time so we would like to thank him for sitting down with us um, but it does continue on to another episode. So so if you would like to find out what happens to Alistair Cram and the many more adventures and escape attempts he has along this journey, please join us next week for part two of this amazing story. Okay, um, well thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.